and welcome. My name is Lucy Burke and this is the Manchester Green New Deal podcast. We're recording this less than 24 hours since Andy Burnham was re-elected as Mayor of Greater Manchester on an increased majority, having pledged to implement a range of policies to tackle climate change and to make Greater Manchester city region a bastion of climate action. I'm joined today by my co-host, journalist Alex King. Hi, Alex. Hi, Lucy. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. And first time presenter on the podcast, but Green New Deal rising star, the great Sean Benstead. Hi, Sean. Hiya, Lucy. Thank you. That's very sweet. Climate change presents an existential threat to humans. It's clear that um, we have a major need for radical action to address it. Alongside the development of new ways of living and working that mitigate the destruction caused by the broken neoliberal economic model that has driven overconsumption, vast inequality and the devastation of the natural world and its resources. As many of our guests here on the podcast have told us, to address the climate emergency we need major systemic change and one which is based on a commitment to equality, social justice and sustainability. Our guest today is Paul Mason, a writer, journalist and activist who's explored the impact of automation, AI and the death throes of neoliberalism on contemporary democracy and ideas of the human. Paul is uncompromising in his diagnosis of the dangers we face and the increasingly urgent necessity to act to challenge the conjoined threats of right-wing authoritarianism and the climate crisis. He's also written about how progressive groups on the left might organise together to challenge this and build a fairer, more equal and more sustainable world. We're really delighted that he's given up his Sunday afternoon to talk to us. So welcome, Paul. It's great to be with you and a shout out to everybody in my part of Greater Manchester, Lee, if you're listening. Uh, hello. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how many listeners we've got in Lee, but um, hopefully that we'll, we'll get some more as a result of this. So the last time I saw you, Paul, was on another rainy Sunday afternoon during the general election campaign in 2019. So it seems um, appropriate that we're meeting again after the recent election results. And it would be great to start by asking you um, for your view of these results and what they mean for the Labour Party. Well, I think um, I wasn't surprised by them. Um, So let's summarise what we're talking about. We're talking about the big thing is that a place like Hartlepool, solidly working class, not poverty stricken. So they've got a nuclear power plant uh, and a and you know a steel plant there and a maritime industry. Although there are you know about a, about a quarter of the children there live in poverty, but it is a working working class town. Just rejected Labour. Labour could only get seven thousand people to vote for it. Now, by my calculations, probably Keir Starmer alone might have actually seen those seven thousand people. I mean, this is a small number of people still prepared to go out and vote for social democracy for. Social, well, what Keir stands for, social, economic and climate justice is what he based his campaign on. But it's not rocking the boat uh, or floating the boat of a section of working people. Um, many of those people will be people in Greater Manchester as well, despite Andy Burnham's superb uh, victory. So this section of the working class, we, co- we, we tend to call it the traditional working class. So it's people in small towns, people in ex-industrial areas, People suffering from a combination of ill health, um, multi-generational poverty and not being able to get out of it because the structure of the labour market has changed so that it no longer rewards manual skilled work. Um, that group of people has been getting steadily more and more pissed off. You know, nothing is satisfying them. So, you know, first of all, well, they've got a Tory government. Uh, they had a Tory government from 2010 
all right? Um, that didn't satisfy them. They needed to leave the European Union. They've left the European Union, not in a soft way, in a hard way. Um, that hasn't satisfied them. In fact, it's about to tank several of the industries that they rely on, including in Hartlepool, you know, and other coastal communities, fishing, um, and eventually tourism. That's not enough either. What, what I think there is, is that a section of the old working class is spiralling away from any progressive project. No, some of them you'll never win back. Many of them, I think, can be uh, brought into a coalition with that other part of the working class that probably is more inclined to be listening to this podcast, which is working people who work in a globally orientated workplace or often in the public sector or, or the education sector, people who's, who have skills and education and are often younger and often don't own their homes. So we're not even just talking about values or generation. We're talking about economic functions here. The renters, you know, tend to be voting in this election, Labour, SNP, Plaid Cymru, Green. And the other big story, I think, especially in the North, has been the Green attack on Labour from the left. Sheffield City Council pulled down a load of trees. The, one of the people in, responsible for that uh, got defenestrated by a Green, 26% swing to the Greens. He was the leader of the city council. You know, that great fact. And then if you add in Scotland, with the SNP and the Scottish Greens going now for independence, politics has become about values and identity. And Labour, as you know from our experience in Bury, as a party, is entirely capable of, of adapting to a politics based on identity, but it doesn't want to. Its leaders don't want to. Many of its activists don't want to. They're prepared to go around and say, whether you live in Middlesbrough or Hackney, your problems are the same. They're not the same. Even where they are the same, the ideological schism within the working class has made them present in a different way. That's the problem, and the election results were the result. So you lose Hartlepool. You lose 200-odd seats in in councils held by Labour. You lose councils in the Midlands. What you gain here, where I am in South London, Kennington, part of Lambeth and Southwark. Now, I don't, I've been trying to find out how individual places in the Manchester mayor election voted. I can't find out. Here we can. Sadiq Khan had a landslide here in Lambeth and Southwark. Who came second? They basically have a transferable vote. The Greens got most of the second votes coming from Sadiq. He got about half his votes. They also came third in the actual race. And when it came to here, picking a London Assembly member, again, the Greens came second to Labour. So it was quite obvious to me in the massive queue for the voting that everybody in the queue was Labour or Green. Now, how are they supposed to understand the reality of a place where, like Hartlepool, only 7,000 people will turn out? So that, that's, the, that's the problem. Identity... And in the middle of it, what we're talking about, the biggest challenge to humanity, climate change. What do you hear from that part of the Labour Party that wants to represent that socially conservative identity that is on, on offer in, from non-Labour voters in Hartlepool? Well, what you hear from them is, fuck the Green New Deal. Basically, they've got uh, focus group evidence that those voters hate the idea. Um, you can probably sell them the, the better, you know, more, more investments and you know, better jobs. But anything with the word green on it turns them off. That, in I'm sorry it wasn't a short summary, but it's my summary of what we're up against. It's really interesting to hear that. I think 
Burnham won everywhere, actually. Am, am I right about that? He won, he won across the board. And I think what's interesting in how he's been positioned is, is there's a real strong assertion of pride in place, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what he's been very good at kind of doing, about being able to offer a kind of vision of Manchester, which is proud of its history, but can also be inclusive and recognise its diversity as well. So I don't, I think you can have a kind of strong assertions of identity don't need to be flag waving. And I think it it, it feels inauthentic when they are, because I I don't think the Labour Party ever does that as well as the the Tories. No, and I think that, I mean, you know, I wasn't there on the ground in Manchester for this election, but yes, it's very strong pride in place. It's also um, a story that, that has a kind of narrative to it in the sense that there was the Manchester bombing. After the Manchester bombing, you remember that woman singing, standing up and singing, you know, uh, don't look back in anger. Well, what is that? To us, to me as a Marxist, you know, having studied the works of this Italian Marxist, Antonio Gramsci, who wrote in the 30s so much about how we have to deal with right-wing thought and right-wing problems within the, labor, within the, within the working class. It, he used this term hegemony. It means dominance, but what it means is influence. So that when that woman stood up and started singing... What it was, was a section of the Manchester working class culturally expressing itself to others. And so if you were, say, you know, in all the places that we really losing, you know, like Lee, Tilsley, you know, um, all the places, ex-mining places, at least they could see that there was a common story. And then Andy, you know, himself is someone who's lived through that story and represents the the mank kind of a, a, attitude, even to people from towns around Manchester who don't think of themselves as mank in any any way, shape or form. That's great. If we could bottle that and do it everywhere, it'd be superb. The problem is, in in many of these places, we're talking about isolated towns. And I, I come from one. Lee, Lee is, to a certain extent, the centre of Lee, which is where the UKIP, Brexit Party, far-right voters are concentrated, has become a little world of its own. No, but it's even more true of physically isolated ex-mining villages in Yorkshire and or coastal communities like Hull and Grimsby. That's where we're having the problems because, I mean, my mates in Lee say to me, the problem is there's no political centre in Lee. There's my mates from Momentum sitting at one end of the pub and then there's ex-BNP UKIPers sitting at the other end of the pub and then everywhere else they'd be in a tiny minority swamped by, you know, students, young people, teachers, nurses... Uh, lecturers at the local uh, university, that's just not there. There isn't even a sixth form, as far as I know, or there wasn't last time I spoke to people. Uh, wow. You have to leave the constituency to go to sixth form. What what we're facing here are places that do deserve what Johnson is saying he's going to give them, which is a load of money to pull them up out of that problem. Um, but what we, you know, obviously people on this podcast would be very interested in the environmental aspect of it. I think... The, what we're calling the Green New Deal could be an amazing vehicle, an amazing offer to them, but it's probably got to be stripped quite a lot of its kind of AOC rhetoric and its greeny rhetoric. And I'm afraid I'm really sorry about that for people who love all that. It doesn't need to be stripped of it in Central Manchester or Brighton or Stroud, you know, or Norfolk, uh, Nor- Norwich rather, where the Greens are like on the on a roll or Sheffield, but it does 
in the places that just want, because there's a large amount of nostalgia clinging to oh. the carbon lifestyle. Oh, just to interject there, aren't there, the central contention there seems to be that these working class communities are adverse to the idea of greening itself, but aren't there studies, oil, um, oil rig communities in Aberdeenshire that show that workers working on oil rigs would rather have green jobs now? So, you know, how do you square that? I think that that's the, the two things can be true. What the problem is, is nothing to do with green. It's to do with the war on woke. It's to right, do with right. the fact that you've got, um, you've got the far right globally pumping out the, the great replacement theory. Immigration is genocide of the white race. I mean, this ridiculous theory. I always want to do sort of, you know, inverted commas around it. It's ridiculous even when you say it. Um, the cultural Marxism idea that, that, that cultural Marxism is trying to destroy the Western way of life and that how it expresses is you can't give your child a, a, a doll with a pink dress anymore. You're not allowed to buy a child a gollywog. This is what you hear people say. You're not allowed to tell jokes in the pub anymore in case you get kicked out. No, no, no in a way, all of that is true. Who wants to hear a racist joke? I don't. Who wants to, you know, who, who would in this day and age buy their child? I, I mean... A, a frigging gollywog but they want the right to do it and mm -hmm. and and so then green has got wrapped up into that and i'm afraid that now what we're facing you may have noticed in the last few weeks that the old right of the labor party has got has got on its high horse again so they published a pamphlet for the fabian society called hearts and minds winning the working class vote and in it one of the Greater Manchester MPs, Yvonne Fauvard, overtly argues that she says, it's all very well, LGBT BAME, we're not going to stop doing that, but it's not important to our core communities. Uh, and, and including in that is a large part of what we need to do. Because I think everybody on this podcast knows, and hopefully many people listening to it, that conventional Green New Deal is not even going to be enough. We need massive lifestyle change to save this planet from the chaos that's coming. You know, EV, uh, PHEV, Mitsubishi, big tractors, you know, you know, kind of Chelsea tractors, aren't, aren't green. Um, we need mass transit. We need walking. We need to do what Helsinki's doing. You know, um, and so the political problem for your generation, I think it's no, ex accent, no secret that everybody else except me on this call is young. The political uh, challenge for your generation is going to be, A, how do you organise a movement that really does believe in in that radical green future, and how on earth do we communicate that to communities that have been told it's all part of a of an attack on the Western way of life? Just uh, on the topic of the the old right, um, there's a lot of talk certainly after these elections about leadership of the Labour Party and the direction that's going and suddenly the sword of Damocles wielded by uh, Lord Adonis and uh, Mandelson seems to be coming slowly or quickly down on Keir Starmer's head. Um, and you have been a, a supporter of Keir Starmer and worked on his uh, leadership campaign. And a lot, of, a lot of people on the left was, I think, I, I don't have the figure to hand, but I think it was 40% of members who voted Corbyn on the second election during the chicken coup of 2016 went to Starmer. This wasn't at the time a right-wing project, but he was elected on the back of his 10 pledges. His third pledge was, as, as we all know, to put the Green New Deal at the heart of everything that we do. But so far, uh, Labour for a Green New Deal have had radio silence apart from a single tweet and vague support from the leadership. 
is this still part of his kind of ill-fated communication strategy? Or do you think this is, uh, you know, that it's been sidelined? It goes deeper than that. The, before we talk about the green aspect, let's talk about the problems that Starmer has. The, the problem is that he perceives, and many of the people around him perceive, that before they can even have an argument with the uh, electorate, they have to re-establish Labour's right to be heard. When you know yourself, Lucy, in, in, in the places we were campaigning, there was a section of the pop- population that didn't even want to speak to you. I mean, a, a, a Labour MP from Yorkshire said to me, I was, um, you know, they, they wanted to do some work around uh, veterans, so ex-army people who, you know, often suffer homelessness, depression, addiction. And, and, and they, he went to a group in his constituency and said, what can I do? And they said, why would we want to speak to you? You know, what, 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 what's Labour got to do with our, our issues? And actually, you know, so, so we're dealing with this problem of Starmer thinking that the way you get around that is to sort of establish yourself as a kind of professional, believable character. But my argument uh, with them, with Starmer's people, is that you don't do that without narrative action and policy. And he's overtly said, he said at the conference speech, I could say what my vision is now, but nobody would hear, nobody would listen. So I'm keeping it for later. This has been a huge mistake. And this is what I think that the Hartlepool and other losses show. That where campaigns had autonomy from, from what we call Lotto, the leader of the opposition's office, where campaigns had autonomy, like Andy's campaign, like Steve Rotherham's campaign, like the Liverpool mayoral campaign, although that was pretty heavily colonised by Labour leadership after it went wrong one time. Um, And also the Welsh Labour Party, they actually managed to do stuff. Coming to your question about where do we see Green New Leader, I think as we speak, this is what uh, is in the balance in this reshuffle and post-election shake-up that Starmer's going to do. I have been publicly advocating and I'm trying my best to advocate, you know, with those who I can speak to. This is the moment to put a figure and, and some bones on Labour's actual Green New Deal project. I, I, I think I would rather call it the, a green industrial revolution, simply because the idea of the New Deal has never been part of British political mythology. And, to be honest, it's not even the New Deal, Roosevelt's New Deal, that we're trying to emulate. I would argue what we're, what we're trying to emulate is America's wartime transformation. You know, that is where it increased its GDP by 15% in a year by borrowing 15% in a year and spending 15% of GDP extra on weapons. Now, we don't want any more weapons. What we do want is a green transformation. If if I can quickly interject there, Paul, I I absolutely agree in terms of, um, you know, the Green New Deal and the kind of branding of uh, of it historically doesn't really resonate within the UK, um, and that's why nationally we're we're bringing our our motion to conference under the branding of the um, Green Jobs Revolution. Yeah, and it is certainly contextualised in the post COVID context. It's got all of the the British trimmings with it. Uh, so I certainly agree with that point. I think that's good, but I'd also say Green Jobs Revolution doesn't explain to people that they're going to have to not probably fly and they're probably going to not have to, um, you know, have a car-based society. Uh, it's That's the, the problem we face. Of course, you know, we can probably get halfway to zero net carbon in the next 15 years quite without doing much, but it, but the, the less radical we are now, the more radical we have to be between 2035 and 2050. 
in terms of lifestyle change. But, okay, so, so, however, the good bit is, I think that we can win those Green New Deal uh, policies at conference. I hope that the leadership will embrace the essence of it even before the conference. I think that, you remember Caroline Lucas and Clive Lewis drew up a Green New Deal bill. I think the plan is for them to bring that back to Parliament um, as private members or whatever. Now, all of those are good, but here's the problem. Or rather, here's the thing that I think your listeners need to understand. The quid pro quo for that is that we haven't been able to persuade Labour to put a figure on it because you've had a Treasury team that won't do any spending proposals. I don't know whether that's going to change after this election. I hope it would. But it's it's going to be the size of Biden's stimulus. In British terms, 200 billion. It's more or less the same as what Corbyn promised in the 2019 general election. Um, 200 billion. But my argument is, OK, the Labour right and their mass base are already pissed off with us over what you might call wokeness, political correctness, BLM, transgender. They're already pissed off with us. Okay, Now, the moment we say the centrepiece of Labour's future programme has to be green industrial revolution, we need something else. And I think that that something else has to be um, stuff that a lot of people on this call and listening to it won't necessarily buy, which is what I call traditional social democratic policies on crime, foreign policy, uh, policing, justice, it's just basically, we are not going to win on our own, Labour, I think anyway. Scotland shows that. We can't govern alone. But we're not even going to have a chance of winning unless we have something to offer to those communities who've rejected the social liberal radical left. And, and they have, let's be honest about it. For sure. And the, the, it's definitely hard enough building that kind of progressive um, coalition within the party anyway. Um, but it, it, it's certainly a strategy that you've advocated in uh, the left, the party in the class uh, essay that you published last year, where you've advocated for the kind of actions taken by Clive Lewis with the EDM he launched the other day and the, the climate bill with Caroline Lucas, where, you know, the, the Labour left to win power, we must um, build an electoral coalition inside the party of that fails with other progressive parties around the con concept of social justice. Now, my, my kind of question around this is that there's different conceptions of social justice and the political priorities that kind of emanate from those conceptions can cause conflict in objectives. And a pertinent example within the environmentalist trends are the priorities, for example, for uh, Labour for a Green New Deal, which call for a huge and rapid expansion of public transport infrastructure, come into loggerheads with many of the conservationists that argue that mass human mobility is often antithetical to a just, healthy planet. I'm wondering if you can talk about how we can reconcile these these conceptions and in, into the successful coalition that you uh, you talk about in the left, the party, in the class. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's never going to be easy. And what you what I think is worth saying is that. Those two views of the role of, say, transportation in decarbonising this planet could be compatible if they were, like, overlapping each other in time. To make the present structure of Britain work, which is a bunch of cities where all the growth is, a bunch of towns which are just need 
more of modernity and more connection. See, the problem is with, you know, all the places that are going, that went Brexit, that went UKIP, that have got fascists there. Problem is they're just isolated. They need, you know, Lee. I mean, I couldn't believe it during the election. I'm going from Lee to Bolton to Bury to outside Bury, and every time I'm getting on a bus, and I'm parting with about a fiver. And I think, well, you know, I, I can go from one end of the Northern Line in London to the other, which is the same as going from sort of Liverpool to where? Uh, New Mills, you know? Um, for £2. It's just unbelievable. So, so we need mass transit. So they're not going to stand by and say, well, yeah, yeah, fine, let's give the bus route up. No, but once we get the mass transit, or rather as we do it, a longer term thing is, right, well, you look at places like Helsinki. Helsinki has ripped up its train tracks. I looked at my hotel window, uh, was there um, with this, this left-wing think tank, Demos, and I said, what is this here? How come there's a walking track right past here? And they said, well, we just ripped the trains out, and now you walk. And what you see is, even though it's really cold and icy, people in big boots and fur coats, they just walk along with their earphones in and their phone in front of them, like it's in front of their face, wander along, because there's lanes. So you don't, you're not going to bump into anybody. You just get in the lane, walk, 20 minutes, you're at work. So now, okay, they're compatible. What do we do? We need to allow people to organise around around projects because in Helsinki, the the Greens run Helsinki. Finnish Labour Party um, is kind of their partner and is very strong. And then the Left Party, which is a bit like would be a bit like Podemos or Syriza or Momentum, they're pretty strong as well. No, however, they have different priorities. The Social Democrats, like us, want green policies to create jobs. Um, whereas the far left, the radical left, is more interested in the post-work future as, as I am. So, no, they, they have no problem sitting in a room together going, all right, whatever the finish for, hey, Jim, but, you know, you want this, I want this, uh, let's negotiate. We run, run the goddamn city uh, in a coalition. Which bits do we get? Which bits do our get? And I think that's, we've got to learn to allow diversity. And this is the problem. The, this is this is great if you've got a, a multi-party system and PR, and I'm a strong supporter of constitutional reform. But if you've got first past the post and you've got this vehicle called the Labour Party, um, Labour Party isn't just bureaucratically simple and slow and, and, and very difficult to make it move. It is also a hothouse for arguments so that everything becomes existential. If you argue for, you know... Inside Labour for for that radical green type of um, you know deep green transformation project, you'll soon find yourself on the wrong end of a series of union bureaucrats, big head honchos here. This councillor, I would really plead with people to try and allow diversity within both the Labour movement and the Green movement because not ideas have to be tested against each other and against reality. And one might sound like it's a great idea, but it doesn't work. And another, which has been lurking there, supported by a few people, might actually be the answer. I've been reading a lot of Andre Gortz at the moment, thinking about ideas of work, actually, and the ways we talk and think about work and, you know, the value of potentially thinking about meaningful activity <laughs> rather than just simply thinking about work itself. But I just wonder how you you know, how we begin to, or how, how you think we begin to build and introduce new ideas 
about what the future might look like and, and what a future that's not, you know, absolutely dominated around, for instance, the kind of five day working week, you know, the kinds of arguments we can make. This is the most existential challenge to the left. If there were, if there was a multi-party system, I would have no hesitation in saying that the left that wants a rapid transition beyond carbon, beyond necessary work, beyond you know sexual, social, gender oppression, racial oppression, should probably just have its own party. Because the problem we've got is that traditional social democracy, and above all, you know, the name is on the tin, Labour, Gortz this French Marxist, heterodox Marxist in the 90s, not only said the working class is, is over, um, he said it too soon, but he was effectively right in the sense that its agency has dissipated. But, but he actually said Marxism uh, needs to become a utopia not based on work. Now, that's a really challenging thing if your name's the Labour Party. And what happens every Labour and Trade Union conference, I get invited when they were still speaking to me to go and talk about UBI, uh, Universal Basic Income, Universal Basic Services, which I think are a much more tangible and possible thing in a country like ours. Um, talk about shorter working life, shorter working year, work-life balance, working across your entire life. And literally... All, what's the, what do they say? First of all, what you're saying about automation is wrong. The automation won't happen. It'll create as many jobs as it, as it destroys. They literally don't, do not, there's a whole body of theory that says information technology is different. And it's not the left who's thought this up. It's some of the most right-wing sort of general sort of thinkers of capitalism. Peter Drucker wrote the first book with the word post-capitalist in the title in 1990. Paul Romer uh, the mainstream economist, he points out information technology is different. It's going to eradicate a lot of work. And you've got laborism sitting there going, well, there's two choices. You slow that down or it's impossible. And it's an even bigger thing than the, as it were, socially conservative hostility to, to green politics is that the, the, the idea that labor's way out of all its problems is to offer people meaningful, decent and well-paid work. Well, I think, yes, that's possible. Absolutely. Meaningful, decent and well-paid work is what we should be offering everybody. But don't think there's going to be enough of it around. So we also have to say, well, to offer person A meaningful, decent and well-paid work in a factory, that factory is going to have to have two shifts of four, four hours each. I mean, it's just... I mean, it's or run it for 36 hours a week at full flat out and then stop it for a bit because, you, you know, you literally you literally are not going to have it. Now, that, Lucy, I think is the huge argument that we face with British social democracy. I'm quite happy to lose that argument because I think that the post capitalist transition is a longer project than the decarbonisation project. You know, when I wrote Post Capitalism in 2015, it was before the ICC, uh, IPCC 2018 report that, that showed how catastrophic, to degree, or 1.5 degree and above climate change, how catastrophic that's going to be. That made me think, and the German thinker, Tadzio Muller, really taught me this. You know, labour movement has this view of time that is, well, we've got time. You know, the reformists always say, well, we've got time because eventually we'll get where we're going with a better society and workers will be more educated, poverty will gradually decrease. Revolutionaries 
as Rosa Luxemburg once said, you know, the, the revolution marches to victory through a series of defeats. Both those attitudes are wrong now because climate change puts a ticking clock into the scenario of the class struggle. And so we have to reorder that. I'm quite happy to say to the Labour right, look, leave, leave the UBI and the shorter working week to me and my tech utopian buddies. Uh, you know, that guy, um, the guy in Birmingham, Perry Bar, the Labour MP who's just resigned from the front bench. He's just done a dire, Khalid Mahmood, a diatribe against us, really, saying you're, you're all urban intellectuals, bourgeois, and you're obsessed with tech utopias. Fine. But let's at least agree to get this, the, the Britain to zero net carbon as soon as we can. That's, can we just agree with that? And if we can't agree with that, and if they say, well, no, jobs are a better, better priority, a bigger priority. It's like left Trumpism, you know, kind of, we're just going to have to have a vote on it and, and win. One of the things we've talked about a lot on the podcast as well is understanding that different kinds of jobs are also green jobs. So we talked a lot about care. Yeah. And actually, and you talk a lot in your work, I think, about the impact of, of you know, kind of changing demographics and ageing societies. And, and, and obviously, there's, there is need for a radical rethink of how we understand um, care and care work as well, which, um, you know, which is a, a low carbon kind of activity, really. So there are, there are still spaces where we can talk about jobs. And we can talk about, um, you know, understanding these uh, sort of the, a, a green job might not be just a sort of standard job on a production line as well or a different kind of industrial job. Exactly. I, what you've said has reminded me of, of something that David Graeber, just before he died, um, the anthropologist uh, and a friend, albeit a kind of adversary and a friend and a comrade, he wrote this. So I'm just going to quote it to you. Most of the work we're doing c- currently is dream work. It exists only for its own sake or to make rich people feel good about themselves or to make poor people feel bad about themselves. And if we simply stopped, it might be possible to make ourselves a much more reasonable set of promises. For instance, to create an economy that lets us actually take care of people who are taking care of us. I mean, what a beautiful sentiment that is. So so what does it mean? If If we take that as a kind of theme, it's not just care work could be well remunerated. It It is, and that... Training to do it could be free so that people who draw their pension but are quite fit, and that's a lot of people in their 60s, for example, including me, you know, I'm in my 60s. I have a, I have a little BBC pension. It gives, me a, it gives me the ability to work four days a week and, and not bust a gut to get, to get every contract and get every job that I'm offered. OK, what, what could I do, do? I could do a lot of things. If somebody would train me, you know, I'm quite busy at the moment, but if I could find time, then care work, youth work, mentoring, counselling, all these things, there's an unlimited need for that. I would add one thing, the cultural economy. The classic working class response to the kind of UBI or the kind of post-work scenario is I, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I wouldn't know what to do if I didn't work five days a week. Work is my identity. And yet, as soon as they retired, the same people find a lot to do. They actually find uh, a lot of it is being cranky members of the Labour Party and tweeting and all the rest of it. But a lot of it is they find stuff to do. They, 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 and it's not just hobbies. They, they work. They transform the environment around them. Right, OK. The thing is, think about the theatre. The theatre is one of the most, or could be, one of the greenest experiences. Because what you've got is... 
massive amounts of value. I mean, in the West End, it's the highest value per hour activity in Britain. But then there's the training. Then there's then there's the preparing. Most of it is analog, you know, in the sense that, you know, the Royal Ballet, all the tutus are probably sewn by hand, you know, hopefully in not in a sweatshop, whatever. But if you think about the theatre as a space, the only energy is just the lighting. And if you if you were really wanting to 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 go all deep green, you could just dispense with that and do everything open air like Shakespeare did. It would be a massively socially valuable and even economically valuable thing. So I think that we all, we have to try and say to people, the future that we're aiming for will be of a high education one where you and, and your friends and family will be incredibly engaged in the joy and beauty of living. And you'll have a lot of time and quite cheap or free will be, it could be everything. If you don't like Shakespeare's plays, it'll be football. It'll be women's football. It'll be everything you would love to see happen, you know, will be there. And that's how we sell it to them. But the problem is laborism isn't set up for that. Paradoxically, trade unionism is. The first miners' banner I ever saw was a, you know, we love those miners' banners, but in fact, what there's usually an old bloke with glasses on them, isn't there? It's not a pit or a clenched fist or a kind of South African miner shaking hands. It's usually an old bloke. But one of the best ones I've ever seen I can't remember which colliery. It was simply a cricket match. It was miners playing cricket in clean white clothes with the sun going down. You can imagine, what did that mean to my granddad's generation? And any time to play cricket, and to walk three miles to the pit, walk a mile underground, unpaid, work, walk home, a bath once a week, probably get completely kale-eyed on Guinness, knowing my granddad, and... Um, that was life. But the trade union meant, no, now we've got time, eight hours work, eight hours rest, eight hours for what you will. I don't see, you know, I've said in, 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 my, late, in my latest book, Clear Bright Future, really the, the best way to sum up what post-capitalism is, is that slogan, eight hours rest, eight hours work, eight hours for what you will. But we change it like this, eight hours rest, Y hours work, X hours what you will, where Y tends to become zero. And X tends to become 16. That's that's communism. Yeah, Paul, it's, re- it's a really interesting point that you raise. And it, it, it sort of makes me think of um, the film Brastoff. Uh, and there's this kind of idea idea of the joie de vivre of the of the working class. I mean, obviously, the brass bands were set up for a different purpose. They were there to break trade unionism. Obviously, not very successfully, but I, sp- I suppose it speaks to the same um, exuberance that you're 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 talking about. I just wanted to shift the the focus of discussion back onto something you've touched upon about foreign policy and away from domestic politics and towards the the international dimension of climate change. And specifically, I wanted to shift the focus to China, which is something you've commented on quite a bit. Um, Recently, Helen Thompson, who's this Cambridge political scientist, wrote a piece for Engelsberg Ideas on the tragic choices of climate mitigation. And in this article, she highlights this tendency among climate activists to paint climate change as an ethical bipolarity insofar as the transition to renewables amounts to an, a sort of ethical renewal of the world, which is to say we're leaving behind this world which has been ethically compromised by fossil fuel combustion. We're transitioning to a just, sustainable, zero-carbon world. Helen problematizes that by highlighting that China is the biggest carbon emitter in the world. 
And there doesn't seem to be a way that we can adopt a collective multilateral approach to mitigating climate breakdown without China. For example, you can't decarbonize steel production because China produces half of the world's steel. So in that scenario, China is essential and it gives it leverage over us because we need them to cooperate. And so in asking them to decarbonize, they will ask us to make compromises and other things like trade, security, human rights, violations. Now, we could be sceptical about that framing of the ethics of climate activism, but it is a good point that climate change is a geopolitical question as much as it is a question of science or economics. So, you know, you've documented Chinese human rights abuses and have written that the left must condemn China's brutal authoritarianism, which I don't think many people would disagree with. But do you think the climate question means detente with China is an imperative? And if so, what painful political choices will we have to make? I mean, I'm lucky enough to have experienced the upswing of China personally. Uh, I, I went, I think, five or six times for the BBC to cover China and was lucky enough to go to, I mean, I literally got driven into a blast furnace once. You know, There's no health and safety. The, the bus just driv, drove into that blast furnace. And said, there's, our big, there's our number six furnace. I, I, I've been in Baotou, which is the biggest steel producing uh, place, I think, in China, in Wuhan steel. And these are incredible. It's like every industrial city in Britain uh, copied and pasted onto a Photoshop into one picture. Um, you know, so look, their project is to, to drag their people out of third world level poverty into medium level developed world um, status. And having done it substantially, I think the Chinese bureaucracy is easily persuadable to do the basics of climate mitigation you know, in the sense of, of decarbonizing uh, as much as, you know, because they see, for example, they've now got first mover advantage in electronic vehicles. Mm-hmm. And not only have they got first mover advantage, they've got 95% of the rare earth minerals that, they, that we need to make them. So they can see it's good if everybody's going towards towards that or to wind turbines that's another rare earth using using um technology now yes helen is right that they're going to use that leverage to say get off our backs on human rights but me or anybody else in you know i'm part of this labor campaign for supporting the work labor movement in hong kong some of my friends are now in jail you know because of what they've been doing yeah whatever we do is nothing compared to this thing that, and here's what the traditional left can't think of, and it's certainly what the Stalinist left doesn't want to think of, the Chinese revolution is what's going to solve it. It's, it's going to be when workers, and I know they exist because I've met them in Shenzhen, uh, I used to hang around outside factories in a hoodie you know, with my Chinese you know, translator saying to people who've been on strike, Has it, will anybody talk to us? And it was it was like being in Britain in the eighties. You know, it was literally used to do the same thing as left wing paper sellers hang out around side factories and talk about strikes. I've done that in you know in the last fifteen years. They're there. One day, they will decide. It's the, see, it's not the from the from the upper class and the educated class that this urge for democracy comes in China. It's from workers who say, "Hold oh, on a minute, I'm working in this factory for Apple, and I'm being asked to sign a." a a contract says I will not commit suicide due to stress. I mean, they're just like us. They're workers. Um, they're not exactly like us, but they are pretty like us. So I think the, the missing thing is not the, the West uses diplomatic leverage to keep demanding stuff, although we should keep demanding it. It's that we need to, 
those of us who can, who've got the you know connections, need to foster a Chinese labor movement. And we need to make sure that the, that Chinese labor movement knows that it's important to us that through the solidarity networks that we can build, that we all commit to a de decarbonized future. But can I say one thing? See, I think I think this ethical aspect of decarbonization is really important for those of us who want society, I think it's possible in a century, within a century, to go beyond capitalism. Because capitalism at the moment is trying to say, well, we've used the, 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 the planet as a waste pipe and a free energy source for about 250 years, as a garbage dump and a, and a, and a tap. But yeah, capitalism, we're fine without all that. Um, it'll, it, we can have a circular capitalism. We can have a green, we can have a decarbonized capitalism. I mean, maybe we can. I hope we can begin that because we're not going to we're going to get rid of capitalism in the next 15 years. But I think people are underestimating the extent to which the entire ethos of capitalism is built on waste and carbon energy. I have a fire at home, a fireplace, and on a cold winter's night, I light a fire. And because I come from a coal producing community, it takes me back. And I know I, I love the idea of burning that carbon, um, even though I realize it's really, it's a, you know, it's smokeless and it's green and it's organic, but it's still carbon. What would it be like if you, if, if the world had never burned carbon? This is what Andreas Malm talks about. If we'd have run capitalism on water, you wouldn't have just had factories running on water. We'd have had a whole different structure of everyday life. If you ever get the chance to go to Cromford, just across the Pennines in Derbyshire, you see the first factory. It was run on water. It's an entirely human scale thing. Mm. So I, I wouldn't give up too easily the idea that we do need an ethical change. That, that ethical change isn't about being good, you know, being cool, whatever. It's about, it's about no longer using the earth as a dump for our rubbish. I read something really interesting recently written by David Harvey in his kind of commentaries about urbanization and how there's a, a you know a festering social unrest among the Chinese citizens who have been forced forced into these mass urbanized yeah. cities that are, are you know these ghost cities which are emerging out of nowhere to kind of you know absorb surplus capital and surplus steel production that they can't offload on the global market and they're charging exorbitant rents and there's a really interesting kind of social movement kicking off there as well. Um, so something to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, and let's, let's not forget that the Chinese, because, because they've used labour and labour intens intensivity, I mean, I've been in factories where there are like 7,000 people, um, you know, and they're under heavy surveillance, barcoded in and out of everywhere, shouted at. Our grandparents reacted to that by being quite feisty. You know, we don't, most of us don't have to put up with that. The ones who do are the least powerful migrants and, you know, trafficked people. But the Chinese labor movement is waiting to exist, it's waiting to happen. Some of my stuff gets translated, crowd, crowdsourced, translated into Chinese. Uh, my book called Live White, Working, Die Fighting is in Chinese and it circulates in the in underground Chinese labor movement. I went to Hong Kong and met some of the activists three years ago. I probably couldn't do that anymore who crossed the border to come and see us. What the best thing to do will be to say that we should be supporting Chinese human rights and we should be supporting above all workers' rights and holding out the possibility, just as we believe, I believe that a, not a revolution, but a very radical transformation of Britain is within our reach. 
I believe it. When the kind of socially conservative kind of stick in the mud population sees it, it will probably like it as well. You know, it's they're not going to resist it en masse. Um, just as, as we believe in the kind of, well, let's call it a revolution in the Turkish sense, you know, everything in Turkey is a revolution. The, the, the green, the anti-capitalist, the post-work revolution, the revolution in, in gender and sexuality and racial justice is coming for us. We have to believe it can come for those massive populations of the global south, Brazil, Nigeria, India, China, um, Southeast Asia. Otherwise, you know, we give ourselves all the agency in history and don't see them as having agency. And in fact, the last 50 years have proved that they have incredible agency. And that's where a lot of my hope comes from, that going back to your original question, creating of a global consensus around decarbonisation is the job of the historical subject. And, you know, I don't think the old proletariat exists anymore or has the same kind of agency. And I, but I do think the way Bertolt Brecht summed up this problem is the best way of thinking about it. Brecht did this film in 1932 on the eve of the Nazis coming to power. It's called Kula Vampa. In the last scene, there's all these communist youth and they're coming back from their youth camp in their uniforms. And all around them are these bourgeois, reactionary, you know, kind of UKIP types. They're saying you can never change the world. Nothing will change. And one of, one of these youth says, a young girl, she says, I'll tell you who's going to change the world, people who don't like it. It's not like the sort of proletariat or the, you know, the underclass or the, the, what the kind of Frankfurt School thought it was all going to be, you know, students and black people. It's everybody who doesn't like the world. So we've got a powerful weapon there because there's a lot of people who don't like the world as it is and want to change it. Thank you so much for coming on the, the show, Paul. We've got one question from uh, some of our listeners who support us on Patreon. Uh, if you want to get involved in the show, please go to uh, patreon.com forward slash pod. This question comes from Gearmund. He says, uh, quoting Yanis Varoufakis, when explaining why the left has not prospered more since the financial crisis in 2008, he says the only reason the left has done so badly is that it's a, we're a pathetic lot of gits. We on the left have no one to blame but ourselves and we're standing in front of history and we should hang our heads in shame. Should we agree? Well, I think we should We should be self-critical. We, we could all do with self-flagellation, including Yanis Varoufakis himself. Yes. But the, thing, the real problem is vision. So much of the left, its vision uh, hasn't moved on since Tony Benn. It really hasn't. Uh, and I understand why, but if you look at my thought processes as i've as i moved on from being a tv journalist i was able to write what i've been thinking for those last 15 years when i was stuck in the bbc you know struck dumb by the rules i, I want we have to move beyond 20th century scarcity socialism yeah no i'm not blaming anybody what if, if that's your thing that's your identity fine but it, it's not inspiring the next generation the real danger is the next generation are being inspired by a kind of capitalist individualism. Mm. You know, I, I chaired a conference in Liverpool last week, uh, you know, organised by the City Council and, and, and Steve Rother and blah, blah. And the showcased person was a young black woman who'd turned a hip-hop magazine into a nail business. The nail business turned into a networking business. And now she employs 100 people, basically, in her own version of what would be close to something like Clubhouse in a tech business, okay? She saw, she incredibly, uh, Charmadine Reed, her name is, incredibly progressive, determined to uh, pr 
fight on childcare, sexual harassment, domestic violence. Not a thought about the labour movement, not a thought about, in a way, solidaristic organisation. She thinks, and, and, and it's proven, you can do it all by starting businesses. I mean, if we don't show that there is another route, the non-business, the non-commercial, uh, and indeed the solidaristic and um, ethical route to that, to the future, then that generation that she's from will have no interest in the left whatsoever because they can, they'll never liberate themselves from capitalism, but they can liberate themselves from quite a lot of its effects by being what Foucault called the, 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 the entrepreneur of the self. That's a really interesting place to end. When I also think there's there's a lot of younger people with loads of, as well, with loads of political energy that is there to sort of build on. And, and definitely that's what I experienced in the general election campaign, that there was so much will and preparedness to come out and to, to work really hard as well. So I think we've also got to value and build on on that. But I just want to say thank you, Paul, for um, answering, <laughs> answering such a broad range of questions so um, so well and giving us, a ta- giving us your time. Thank you. We're now at the section of the show where we um, shout out to people, organisations, groups that we feel are doing a, a great job in in either sort of supporting the environment or making change in their communities. So I'm going to move to Paul and say, what are your shout outs? Well, I've got one shout out, and that is for a think tank called Autonomy.Work, based, I think, in London, uh, headed by... Will Strong, Carl Lewis, Cam Sandu, Julian Siravo, Phil Jones, Ina Pandya, and others, they're doing some brilliant thought work for us um, because they've taken seriously the idea of universal basic, basic income, the post-work society, the green transition that we've been talking about, the, the green transition that transforms the way of living, that doesn't just uh, electrify the carbon lifestyle. So autonomy.work are brilliant. And if you don't know uh, the work of another uh, think tank, I would also urge you to think about it. Anybody is involved in policy, and that is Demos Helsinki. Demos in Britain is a quite a sort of, you know, centrist neoliberal setup. But Demos Helsinki have been advising the left, the Greens, and the far left in, again, the, one of the few successful UBI trials in the world, and indeed designed that trial. So... Yeah, I, there are obviously lots of groups doing fantastic, you know, things uh, that that I could talk about. But I, I think at the level of policy and thinking, that's what I would say. Yeah, that's my shout out. Thank you. So I'm going to go to Sean. Yeah, I'd like to do uh, a shout out for the TSSA Transport Union and their campaign to save Eurostar, our crown jewel of sustainable, low carbon, and cross border and formerly public transport. Um, currently, the British government is letting it fail as a political pawn against the French, um, and TSSA are doing all they can to lobby the government to step in and save that, as they have been doing for the aviation industry. And we all know the sustainability of that. Nice one. Thanks, Sean. And Alex? Well, I thought it was only right for us to highlight some of Labour's Merrill wins. God knows, Starmer's not going to. Um, so this shout-out is for <laughs> Paul Dennett, a.k.a. the Sensible Socialist Mayor um, of Salford, whose radical programme of house-building and ambitious plans for carbon neutrality show that people will buy into progressive political visions if you have 
policies in the first place. Thanks very much. And mine is to an organisation called Hubbub, who've just um, launched a project to um, support residents and communities in Manchester to take action on climate change. And I was, um, it's uh, one of my former students works for them and, and that's how I know. So it's a shout out to them and to Laura Howarth, who let me know about it. Thank you. The Green New Deal podcast is created by Adam Williams, Alex King, Lucy Burke, and me, Andrew Glassford. The show is also produced and edited by myself. Special thank you to our Patreon supporters, Barbara Burke and Guillermund. If you'd like to join them in building the show, please head to patreon.com forward slash pod to become a patron, helping us to get even bigger and better, but not in that infinite growth ecological disaster kind of way. Thanks.